0: In this edition of the podcast, Persia comes to the powerhouse. For the first time, the unseen extensive collection is presented under the banner, Iranzamin. In fact, the exhibition is but a tiny part of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences collection of Persian pieces, functional pieces they are, that today also stand as works of art. We'll speak to curator Professor Pedram Kozronajad about the exhibition and learn about his extensive background, and we'll also catch up with Lisa Havilar about the genesis of the exhibition and about what 2021 holds in store for the powerhouse. I'm Tim Stackpool and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again. And a quick thanks too to our sponsors, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab, the laboratory for professional photographers Pixel Perfect support goes towards the transcript of each episode, particularly popular, of course, with our hearing-impaired fans. And you'll find a link to each episode's transcript in the description of the edition at www.insidethegallery.com.au. The first exhibition surveying the powerhouses' collection of Persian arts and crafts is underway right now until the 8th of August. Iranzamin, the land of the Persians, showcases more than 100 rarely seen objects, exploring the diverse social and cultural history of Persia, today's Iran. The exhibition examines how objects inspired by traditional arts and crafts were used in Persian society and by its people. Iranzamin includes objects acquired from the 1880s through until this year, with a focus on the Qajar era, that's 1789, through till 1925 and encompasses material, culture and techniques from handwoven crafts, carpets and rugs, textiles, embroidery and foundry to arms and armour, glass, ceramics and tiles. The curator of Iranzamin is Professor Pedram Khosronajad. He is adjunct professor in the Religion and Society Research Cluster at Western Sydney University and a Fellow of the Department of Anthropology at Harvard University. He first gained his PhD studying in Paris. He's also worked as the Associate Director of Iranian and Persian Gulf Studies at Oklahoma State University in the United States, and as the Chair of the Iran Heritage Foundation for the Anthropology of Iran in the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. His research interests include cultural and social anthropology, visual anthropology and ethnographic film, covering topics such as visual piety, devotional artefacts and religious material culture, with a particular interest, of course, in Iran, Persianate studies and the Islamic world. I first asked the professor at the exhibition, given the unique nature and focus of his curation, how was it that the Powerhouse Museum came to acquire such an extensive collection?
1: You are the only one asking a very sharp question, thank you. You know the history of today's powerhouse back to City International Exhibition, and there we had participation of Botanic Garden and different other institutions, who received already collections in which you could find Persian arts. The provenance is always very interesting for museums, and as far as I can say, majority of objects that we can see here back to Qajar Dynasty belong to non-Iranians who lived in Persia, in cities like Isfahan, Shiraz, Tehran. They were there for businesses. And then we know that we had Second World War. As soon as they understood something is wrong, many of them left Iran with their objects of Persia. Wherever they went, they went back to Europe, England, Russia then for another reasons different reasons they ended up to Australia since let's say oof and brought the objects with themselves when they were you know departed their children donated dedicated the objects to those museum and those collection little by little came to each other and this is why majority of objects they have these stories we didn't purchase any object. And this is the beautiful thing. So, me as anthropologist, I'm trying to trace the story of objects. And I found amazing stories that I told some of them in introduction, but just as an example, we have two watercolors designers as a carpeteer from Paul Ratzer. And I said, Paul Ratzer, it's a very strange German name. Paul Ratzer was born in Russia around 1900 by german parents who immigrated already to Russia by revolution he moved to iran and settled down in kerman in center of persia and he built up can you imagine a business of persian rug and he became rug weaver these are paintings of Paul Razza understood again war will happen moved with his wife to london and in 1941, immigrated to Australia. He claimed, in arrival, I have 10,000 pounds cash and more than 50 Persian rugs. When he departed, he was also a friend of Jack Cadry. Jack Cadry is the main figure in this story. Not the exhibition, but the story to bring lovers of Persian crafts together, especially those love carpets, and Florence Balthus also was one of them. Jack Cadry helped Florence to develop this lovely Persian motif wallpapers and exhibition. So, and Jack Cadry himself is an immigrant, first Jewish Persian immigrants of Australia. So yes, majority of our collection, these 120 objects, they came in the way of immigration, if you want, and this is how make me comfortable. Powerhouse Museum, which has the lovely idea, of Parramatta Powerhouse 2024, moving to Parramatta among immigrants of Northwestern Sydney, and one of them, my aim is how art objects can talk with their community that they never seen that. How I can educate them again through the objects that we have. This is what you didn't see, not even your parents did see. So this is the role of new, no, a curator and museum of applied art and science. It's
0: great insights and education and always lovely to hear that the objects were not plundered, No. but were either gifted, donated, or or acquired simply. Isn't it beautiful? Yes, this exactly. Is now there's a limited number of items here in your exhibition, yes. but there's almost two thousand Persian yes. objects held by the museum. Minimum. How did you choose which ones to include yeah. here? So,
1: for the last 20 years, I educated, work in different countries. Moving to France, I had two degrees in paintings. I was a professional painter and professor of art, and historian of Islamic art. I moved to France to do my PhD in social and cultural anthropology. Because of that, I work a little bit in Louvre Museum. Then they invited me to teach at the University of Oxford in the UK for three years. I was lucky to walk in Ashmolean Museum and Petrives Museum. Then I walked eight years in St. Andrews. Then I moved for a year as a visiting professor to Japan as a visiting professor in National Museum of Ethnography of Japan in Minpaku Osaka. So and after that in Brazil, a year I was in Museum Ethnography of Rio and last three years in the United States where I did and created many you know, exhibition. So I have, I'm, I'm a type of academic that I'm curator and social anthropologist professor too. as I'm here in Australia, adjunct professor in Western City University in Liverpool. When you work as anthropologist who constantly work on material culture, immediately you under, I'm a specialist of religion, I'm a specialist of war, I'm a specialist of crafts and production. So immediately I understood, wow, we have around 2,000 objects, prehistory objects. It's a long journey. If we want to have exhibition, how I can focus again with the aim of our leader, Lisa Havila, Paramatta Powerhouse 2024, community engagement, knowing the fact we are a museum of applied art and science, not art gallery. We are not British museum. And then immediately I understood community engagement goes through objects, this is what I'm teaching for last ten years: how my community or communities can see the object and understand this is from their culture. And also, I ask object talk to me. And little by little, I understood. Okay, I want to have this concept, this concept. Well, from 300 to 200, 200 to 120, and the provenance of stories of objects. So in the end, I came, you know, to 120 which perfectly create my aim of cultural anthropologist, purification and cleansing, joyfulness and happiness. The themes that embedded in culture today and Persian Iranian immigrants suffering for lack of that because they are far from Iran. They are here, probably they cannot return to Iran. But their object and their culture is here. And I can bring them here. This is your culture you are missing. So this is how I reduced the number and arrived to this, what we have today here.
0: Is this more than a story of immigration? Is there, is there a, a greater message in here? Or have you just taken a slice of Persian immigration into Australia and no, hoped to it's, communicate it's, that?
1: No, it's just part of a slice. Because for running this exhibition, that you know, exhibition is for five months. And I... Introduce the exhibition to my community of Northern Sydney, Iranians. What do you think? How we can do? And this is engagement, it's not immigration. They are immigrants, but they're Australians. So no, but embedded as an indirect message, what immigrants can learn from this exhibition, and what this exhibition can teach other immigrants, which are not Iranians.
0: These are great practical objects here, but of course, combined with artistic merit. Yes, definitely. Does the region still, you think, generate this sort of creative talent? Oh, definitely. Persian culture
1: is really, how I can put it in the words: perfectionist culture. Everything should be perfect. So, In art and crafts also, Persian artists and craftsmen were perfectionists. Maybe for one sword, it took one year to make it. But this is why Persian sword makers of Isfahan were very famous in 10th century in Alhambra, Spain. Or Persian tiles or carpets of 15th century carpets of Safavid Isfahan silk carpets were famous in japan emperor of japan used the dress of his personal samurai bodyguards from silk carpets of isfahan nice example no yeah perfectionist and be very intact is part of persian art which is still continuous
0: very very far-reaching one of the objects that that I found quite interesting that I think stood apart from some of the others was that you've included banknotes and currency in this. Why is that?
1: Historically, Iran's divided between different dynasties in Iran, from 15th century Safavid, then Qajar and Pahlavi. Somehow in the exhibition I also wanted to show to everyone, including Iranian, what was your history. Don't forget about that. Gajar period, when Pahlavi came to the history of Persia, Reza Shah, he destroyed literally and physically the history of Gajar, especially arts and crafts, architectures, palaces, wiped out and spent money to craft his own history. It's obvious everywhere. But Iranians, including, let's say, my parents, don't know about Gajar period. And that king, Nasser din Shah, is the big patron of art and architecture. Father of photography of Iran. The first photographer of Persia. The only king photographer in the world. Traveled three times to Europe. Rumors lover of Queen Victoria. And I was really amazed to find his banknotes and coins. Beautiful plates that he ordered make in China in Canton in China but his name is calligraph in Farsi on it so I said this is very good moment to tell to our visitors look not only he was a big because what's the name of that team patronage and crafts he is there as a patron of the art but also the praiser used and the craft him itself so this is why we see banknotes. But historically, when you move to Pahlavi, also say, oh, we have banknotes of Reza Shah and Shah. This is where we stop, 1978. And the plate of Queen of Persia. Historically, I think I was interested to show them. Also, even they were against Qajar, but they were a good patron of art. Plate of Queen made in Germany. So, yes, there are some historical education embedded there, and why not with banknotes? Crafts and objects that are used by people. They are not new banknotes, they are, you really see them. And I think it's beautiful that, besides ceramic, besides silk, I have banknotes too, you know? And also, what, what I would like to add, if you permit, I wanted a sensory exhibition. This is why, in front of some of the sets, you hear the anthem, when you are in flag, when you are in front of Sufi objects, you see the rumour of prayings and rituals of Qadiri Sufi of Kurdistan of Persia, or when you are in front of performance and rituals, you have the Muharram rituals in the praise of Imam Hussein, the Prince of Maatis, that our visitors feel these objects are not museum objects. They had life, and this is how one curator who is anthropologist in Museum of Applied Art said this for you, it's not art gallery. Objects were used, so listen how and where they were used.
0: Yes, the, the audio as you pass by the displays is all terribly relevant yes. to, to the objects. Yes. You mentioned also a specialty of yours being religion. Do these objects tell us about the spirituality of the time? Is there any reflection, for instance, with the Islam in these, in these objects? Well, we have two
1: sets that are connected to the religion and devotion. The first one is in Sufism in Iran, that I added some of the uh, really devoted objects. Sufism is Islam, but not all Islam is Sufism. So, But is Iranian version of Sufism, which is attached, inspired by Shiism. Imam Ali Asadullah line of God is their leader, and then the Sufi masters. We have a Sufi master head. That beautiful comb is something between, let's health, art, and devotion. What? How we use a comb? Comb is for cleansing hair, beard, in case of Sufi. But if you see around this comb. They engrave the name of Prophet Muhammad and twelve saints of Shiite world. When you touch it, when you touch your body, you give sacredness and purification to your soul too. Yes, there definitely we have mostly notion of Sufism and religion and devotion rituals, but definitely Shiite Islam is in the next one where we have performances purely Shiism. Sayyid al-Shahada, Imam Hussein is Prince of Martyrs that they praise you know, him. And every year during the month of Muharram, all Shiite, but especially Iranians, lament in the street publicly and those arms and armor that we see and that beautiful Shiite banner used still in the public to
0: praise his memory. On that theme as well, the display cases, custom designed, very much reflect, I guess, the architecture you would expect to see in the period. But they're very strong, very stone-like, almost like altars in a way. Well, the idea when I
1: decided to do that on Iran's, I mean, an Iran theme, I had several meetings with our design team and my idea was how far we can go to give life to the real objects to feel they are in their own home or place or palace called whatsoever. So I collected many images of palaces of Iran, especially Golestan Palace, which is today museum, the biggest museum complex in Tehran. These arcs that you can see here, it goes very well with Islamic architecture, especially Qajar. So I made many images for comparison for our design team, but the color and texture that you see here is like marble, is like interior of Golistan Palace marbles. And it's lovely and arcs that we repeatedly use here give a feeling that how in Iranian architecture, in also domestic home or court or palace, we keep them safe in this shape. Yes, you're right. By aim also, we wanted to guide the gaze of our visitors that this is somehow the texture and color, even shadows, even the playing with shadows. It was important here uh, how we kept them in Persian houses and architecture. You're right.
0: And finally, Pedram, what would you hope that the the average visitor to powerhouse would, would leave with when they come through and see your exhibition? What's the message you'd like them to go home with? Unity. Unity is an
1: important fact for me again now as a human. Let's forget about curator or anthropologists. That the title, Iran Zamin, One Day was the land of Persians, that today doesn't exist anymore is Iran with that political borders, which is not wrong. Afghans, Azerbaijani, Tajik, Pakistan, India, Iraq, Turkey, we were big land of Iranians. Today, when you talk about Khujand, Tashkent, Kharazm, they are names that in embedded in our soul as Iranians. I hope our friends, my Hamzaban in Persian, our language is the same if our nationality is the same. All of us Persian speakers of the world that living in Australia, Tajik, Afghans, Uzbek, Kyrgyz, Uygur, come and feel this is home. This is why I choose Iran Zamin to include everyone, every one of you, every one of your family members and bring children and also Australians
0: No, unity was part of our culture. That's the curator of Iranzamin at the Powerhouse Museum, Professor Pedram Khosronajad. And that exhibition is running in Sydney until August the 8th this year. And while still at the Powerhouse, it's a chance to catch up with Lisa Havilar. Lisa is the chief executive at the museum. And before asking her about the extensive calendar of events and exhibitions lined up for the Powerhouse this year... I first asked Lisa how such a niche and perhaps previously unseen collection of Persian artefacts finally came to light in 2021.
2: The way that Iranzamin started was we're undertaking a very big digitisation collection project where we're assessing and digitising 338,000 objects from our collection. And so we have a huge team of over 100 people working on that project. And so what um, we were looking for was to look at you know, very particular aspects of the collection. And um, Pedram, who's been working with us for a year, started to work on, you know, looking at particularly the Persian-Iranian collections. And through that work, we really realised the extent of that collection. And he developed the show. And I think it was it was really the opportunity to bring out those objects and those stories that had never been seen before. And I think, you know, that's not the only thing that's come out of Pedram's work. Not only do, do we have the exhibition, but all of these objects and their interpretation will be online um, anytime. So we're really excited about that.
0: Does it surprise you, even though the extent that you've been working with the powerhouse now, does it surprise you at the extensive nature of the collection?
2: It constantly surprises me. <laughs> it constantly surprises me and... Um, it's so rich and has such depth and I think endless opportunity to tell stories but connect communities with their histories and I think that's one of the things that's very special about Aransamin is the work that Pedram's doing with communities right across Sydney and Western Sydney to really interpret those objects but connect those Sydney, New South Wales, Australian communities um, with Iranian, Persian cultures.
0: Beyond this exhibition, as I said, you have an enormous timetable coming up. Yes. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about what you're excited about over 2021?
2: Yeah. So one of the projects, one of the biggest projects this year is a project called Eucalyptus Dom, um, which is Kingdom of the Eucalyptus. And our museum has a very long history um, with the eucalypt because we were there 50, 60 years ago working on the development of the eucalyptus oil industry. And so we were very, very much part of that and we had a very big focus on economic botany, which is an interesting part of the museum that and a story that um, hasn't been told, really. And so this exhibition will tell that story, but it's brought together a whole range of creative people, artists, historians, to really look at the um, eucalypt um, from a whole range of different perspectives. And the eucalyptus is so much part of our national identity and it's also you know there's over 800 eucalyptus species 842 I think and so many of them are under threat so it not only tells a history but it also really looks to a very contemporary issue as well.
0: There are so many facets of that. Just listen to you talk about it. The eucalypt is included in so much of our early painted artwork Mm. and even through to more contemporary works on screen, for instance. I mean, Sonny Hammond was using a eucalypt leaf to call Skippy in Mm. the Bush Kangaroo series. I mean, it really is endemic into our culture.
2: Yes, you're so right. Everywhere um, you look, you know, the the eucalyptus is, you know, um, snuggle pot and cuddle pie Fashion, design, decorative arts, it really reaches right across, um, you know, who we are as a country and I think constantly connects back to who we are as a museum because not only were we um, leading in terms of eucalyptus oil development, but we also used to be a teaching institution. So we have thousands of wood samples that are samples of how, in terms of the building industry, used Australian wood in a whole range of different ways. And so it really is quite incredible. The more uh, you sort of delve into the eucalyptus, the the deeper it gets.
0: (laughs) And and when will we see this exhibition?
2: Uh, It opens in July. So um, it's being developed right now. So there's a lot of people working on it. And so we're really excited to um, be able to unveil it later in the year.
0: Last time we spoke, we were pretty much in the midst of COVID Was that an opportunity for you to perhaps take a breath and now hit the accelerator again or was it just so frantic trying to manage throughout (laughs) that time?
2: Um, Well, it was a really challenging time and we were very focused on, you know, retaining our staff and ensuring all of our staff had, you know, meaningful work um, through that period and so we really went back to, you know, our collections and our digitization project and after July we really started building on our program for this year. So it was a moment to reflect but we are in a period at the moment of constant reflection because what is really important in terms of the overall renewal of the powerhouse is that we're looking back to move forward and making sure that we're bringing forward the incredible legacy and hundreds of years of you know work um, bringing that forward. As we build our new museum in Parramatta, as we renew the powerhouse, as we expand in Castle Hill, that's critically important for it to have meaning and continuity but also enable us to continue to enrich the ways that we tell stories and enrich the ways that we share the collection.
0: What's your philosophy in terms of outreach beyond Sydney, beyond New South Wales into the rest of the country? Is there one?
2: We um, The powerhouse is absolutely... An Australian institution, and more and more, and an international institution. And some of the exhibitions that we're doing this year so, we have a partnership with um, the National Museum of Korea for a project called 500 Our Hearts, which celebrates the 60th anniversary of friendship between Korea and Australia. So, we are um, trying to work on this sort of very localized but also giving. Um, that localised level of work and storytelling in terms of Sydney and New South Wales, a national and international context. So very important that our partnerships uh, reach out across Australia but also around the world.
0: Lisa Havillard there, Chief Executive of the Powerhouse Museum talking about what's in store for the institution over the coming year. And before that, we heard from Professor Pedram Kosronojad, the curator of Iranzamin, And as I said, that's running now until early August. And as always, we have a link to more information about this exhibition in the episode description at www.insidethegallery.com.au, as well as a link to our transcript, thanks to Pixel Perfect Pro Lab. And you'll also find links there, too, to our Facebook and Instagram pages. And there's also a link there to our mailing list, which will only ever alert you to a new episode being published. No junk mail, I promise you. And actually, there's also some video of the Iranzamin exhibition that I filmed during the media preview, and you'll find that on our Facebook page if you want to take a look. That is our podcast for now. Thanks once again for joining us. I'm Tim Stackpole. Bye-bye for now.